Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Ray Zinn, who is author of Tough Things First, Leadership Lessons from Silicon Valley's Longest-Serving CEO. Today we will discuss how doing tough things first may be essential to getting ahead. Ray is an inventor, entrepreneur, and the longest-serving CEO of a publicly traded company in Silicon Valley. He is best known for creating and selling the first wafer stepper and for co-founding semiconductor company Micrell, which provides essential components for smartphones, consumer electronics, and enterprise networks. Ray served as Chief Executive Officer, Chairman of the Board of Directors, and President since Mikrell's inception in 1978 until his retirement in August of 2015. Some credit his philosophy on people, servant leadership, humanistic management, and the ethics of corporate culture with Mikrell's nearly unbroken profitability record. Ray holds more than 20 patents for semiconductor design. He's a proud great-grandfather and actively retired and mentoring entrepreneurs. Ray, welcome. Well, thank you, Elena. I'm glad to be here. I think that must be a lot of wisdom that you have to share with us after so many years at the helm. Let's well, start. That's what you get when you're this old. Oh, old and wise, right? We hope. Let's start with an easy question. What is a wafer stepper? Am I saying that correctly? You are saying it exactly correctly. So a wafer stepper is used to optically image uh, the electronic circuit onto the wafer because semiconductors are made on wafers. And the um, uh, stepper provides a high-resolution uh, way to image that uh, the electronic circuit on, onto the wafer. So that's basically what a wafer stepper is. So it's an essential component in what kind of equipment? Uh, it's a semiconductor manufacturing uh, piece of equipment that um, has been around since uh, um, about the mid-70s. And it's uh, a tool that is extremely important. In fact, uh, back in the, uh, in the day when I invented it, uh, it was considered too advanced and no one would ever need it because it was too slow and be too costly uh, and nobody really needed anything of that image quality back in those days. However, I saw into the future and the need for that and therefore um, came up with the idea of stepping the image directly onto the wafer, thus reducing some of the intermediate steps that causes uh, degradation in the image. Uh, and that piece of equipment even to this day, is probably the most important piece of equipment that we use to optically optically image the circuit onto the uh, silicon wafer. And, of course, image has become king these days with videos uh, being at the head of the line in terms of consumer and business consumption, right? Yes. In, in fact, you know, um, the semiconductor is probably the the vehicle that has allowed all this technology to come about. You know, if you think about Silicon Valley, uh, which is where I live uh, in the Bay Area, uh, it, it got its name because of the silicon wafer that uh, that was used to um, to create uh, the, uh, the the circuit. And um, the importance of that is that most of the companies. Uh, that were in semiconductors were located in, in Silicon Valley or in the Bay Area, and that's how it got its name. But anymore, most of these companies have moved out and no longer are located in, in the Silicon Valley area or the, the Bay Area. And as a result now, it's more like Software Valley because it, the semiconductor has allowed the, um, the transformation into, into all these different software companies that uh, if it weren't for the semiconductor technology, wouldn't wouldn't exist. So we've kind of gone from, as you would, Silicon Valley to more like Software Valley. Well, large uh, unicorns, as they call them, uh, you know, LinkedIn and and Facebook and uh, Twitter and and uh, uh, Ubis and those companies, um, Ubis, I guess it is, uh, are located here in in the Bay Area. 
Well, Apple also. Apple is a, another very large uh, semiconductor company. In fact, Apple uses more semiconductors than any other company on Earth. Now, most of their manufacturing is offshore, right? That's true. Um, um, most of the companies that, that are the large companies uh, have gone offshore to, to do the manufacturing because just the cost of, of, of doing it in the United States has been, in their minds, prohibitive. Companies like Cisco Systems, uh, uh, which is located also in, in Silicon Valley, uh, has chosen to assemble uh, their product offshore. So you're right. Uh, most of them have gone offshore just to reduce costs. Let's talk about this concept that you espouse in the book, doing the things that you like the least first as an entrepreneur. Would you tell us a little bit about that and where this concept was born? Yes, what it actually came from, Elena, was um, the concept, and it sounds like an oxymoron, to love the things you hate. Uh, and and so, um, uh, you know, when I think about doing the tough things first, the the tough things are the ones that I don't want to do, the things I'd like to procrastinate, put off. And uh, and so they, they tend to get uh, pushed into the background, but they're there. I mean, I can't ignore them. They're going to happen. I have to deal with them. But I don't want to deal with them because I'm human, and I just say, I don't want to do it. And so, uh, and so I just push them off until I can't ignore them anymore. Then I have to, to, um, to tackle them. The problem with that is, as you know from the um, uh, terminology of procrastination, it, it really um, uh, it drags down your efficiency because you're going to be thinking about those things that you don't want to do until you get them done. And that consumes a lot of, um, of mind share. And as a consequence uh, of that, your efficiency drops. So uh, what I found is that I can increase my efficiency by more than 20% if the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is do the things I don't want to do, like exercise. That's, that's the first thing I do. When I get up in the morning, I exercise uh, and, and get that behind me. And, and, uh, and then I go to the next thing that I don't want to do and then get those all the way because the rest of the day then is freed up to do the things that I like doing and that I can do uh, – better. So um, I get a lot more done by doing the tough things first. So that's the key. The key is if you want to improve your efficiency, get more things done in the day, just get rid of those things you're going to not want to do and that you procrastinate doing. Okay, so secondly, back to the to the statement that loving the things you hate, if you can to learn to, to, to love the things you don't want to do, uh, you will be finding that you're a much better person that you can be you'll be happier you'll be um, uh, not able you'll be able to really get in and 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 tackle those uh, those those projects uh, that uh, you know maybe it's uh, learning to play the piano or or learn to play the violin or 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 doing some of the other things that you don't think you can do and um, and that are things that I think would improve you personally if you would just get and, and do them. And that's what I call loving the things you hate. And I know it sounds like an oxymoron, but um, it's, it's really key. And I have found that, that I have uh, uh, gained a lot of talent and, and, and abilities by just doing the things that I normally wouldn't do because I didn't think I could do them and I didn't want to do them. A lot of people talk about playing to your strengths, focusing on the things that you're good at, and hiring or delegating the things that you don't like or that you're not very good at to someone else. What do you think about that? Well, you know, Adam Smith talked about the, the division of labor, uh, and, and and I believe in that. I believe that uh, that the people who are good and who are specialists uh, are much better doing uh, things than than uh, uh, those who aren't like, not good at it. Uh, so yes, there there is a a place for that and a need for that. However, if you only focus on, on things that you're strong at, you never develop your um, your your weaknesses. And I think it's your weaknesses that make you strong if you overcome them. Um, and so if you always just play to your weakness, if you you say, okay, I'm I'm, I'm not going to do that because I'm weak, then you never grow. You never develop uh, and and 
and broaden your your talent base. So um, I'm very very keen on on uh, working on my weaknesses to become a stronger person. How do you decide which approach to follow? There are people I know definitely who have made it their life's mission to avoid doing the things that they don't like, to postpone work as much as they can, and to find someone else to take on those tasks. How do you know this is for you? Is it? Does every entrepreneur, does everyone wanting to he- get ahead need to embrace this? Is there some sort of a test that you give yourself to know this is good for you? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that I agree with the concept that um, um, uh, that you can't that the, or you shouldn't um, uh, work on your weaknesses. Um, and you know, there are things, of course, that, that we do do better than we do other things. So that's 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 obviously natural because you know I'm vertically handicapped, and so therefore uh, me being a basketball player may be a more of a handicap uh, than if I were seven foot tall. Uh, so you know we we should uh, uh, go to our strengths. However, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also uh, improve on our weaknesses. And and I think that's that's a key uh, element that's lost. If you only focus on your strengths and not your weaknesses, uh, you know then you're then you're not going to be a well-rounded person. So uh, uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't uh, go to your strengths because. Obviously, if you're if you're a talented singer, uh, and 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 didn't uh, uh, follow that, then then of course you're you're not going to benefit from that God-given talent that that you have. Um, but certainly, uh, there's there's a lot to be gained by working on the things where where we're weak, uh, whether it be your physical weakness, uh, you know, using exercise as a way to to build up your strength, uh, or if you're if you've got a speech impediment or or some other impediment. There's nothing wrong with with uh, trying to to improve your your ability to speak or your ability to uh, to, to um, memorize or you know any number of other things. And learning multiple languages. Uh, you know you may you may not be gifted in, in languages, but there's nothing wrong with trying to to improve on that. So that's the concept of doing the tough things first. Is if you learn how to do that. Look what you can gain, the experience you can gain, and how many talents you can you can uh, enhance if you are willing just to, to to work on those weaknesses. What about something like introverts versus extroverts? Your comfort level, if you're an introvert, is clearly in one space, and if you're an extrovert, it's another. And in order to move in the space that's not your comfort level, you have to stretch yourself, which takes resources and time. I agree. And, and but as you learn to do that, and as you overcome that that propensity to avoid things you feel uncomfortable doing, you become better at it. Um, and I trying to remember now who was the one that that made it to this quote that says. Uh, that which we persist in doing uh, uh, becomes better. Not that the task itself becomes easier, but our ability to perform it becomes easier. And, uh, and, and, and that's the key here in doing the tough things first, is that, that the, not that the task becomes easier, but your ability to do it becomes easier if you persist in doing it. What percentage of your time or your effort, you know, as a productive person, whatever line of work you're in, you have a limited number of hours in your day and specifically a number of hours when you're at the, your peak of productivity. What percentage of that time do you think people should dedicate to doing those tough things that require more effort and more energy and give a lesser result, certainly until they get better at them, how can they divide their time so they can maximize their efficiency and still do the things that they like to do efficiently? Well, in the beginning, you may have to spend more time uh, at that and to, be, to become good at it, um, you know, whether it be learning a language, whether it be learning a, uh, to play a musical instrument, uh, whether it be learning to speak uh, like in Toastmasters. Um, you know, 
you you will spend more time in the beginning because you have to overcome some of those some of those problems. You know, if you're learning to play the piano, you got to do the scales. You got to learn that, uh, which you wouldn't necessarily have to do after you learned the, the, to do the scales. But in the beginning, it may take a little more time. But you will find that once you've overcome one of those areas that that you found difficult to do or you didn't want to do, you know, that's encouraging. You become enthused about it. Um, you know, I've been I became enthused about languages because I. Uh, I overcame the fear of talking to people in a different language, uh, and but it took time, uh, and and you know as, as they say, no pain, no gain. So you're going to have to overcome that desire to quit or not to not to spend the time at it. And if you're not willing to spend the time, you're not going to improve on that talent. Um, now, I'm not saying that you should spend all your time doing it. But uh, certainly, you know, you should balance your day so that you do concentrate some of your time on doing those things that you don't want to do so that you can overcome that propensity to procrastinate. I think procrastination is probably one of the worst habits that we humans have. And if, if, if we could totally eliminate procrastination, look how much more we get done because procrastination really means you're going to put off something in the future which should be done now. And, 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 you know, when, if something should be done now and you put it off, look, look what you've lost. You've lost that edge. So, um, that's, uh, that's my view on that, Elena. What are the habits that you think, other than procrastination, entrepreneurs should stay away from, should overcome? You're talking about now the bad habits? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Okay, so um, I think one of the, the worst habits that, I, that I've seen, at least amongst my peers, has been use of profanity um, and, and, and also the, uh, just the, the time-wasting of, of, uh, of not being a willing listener. Uh, so... Uh, you know, if you're if you're not a willing listener, and, uh, and and if you use profanity, I think those are the two worst habits that an executive uh, should overcome and and, sh- and should fight because both of those are are bad habits. And and what I mean by um, uh, a willing listener is like a, a good doctor, you know, good bedside man is who the who listens carefully to to his patient and understands his patient rather than just sitting there thinking about something else and, and not focusing on, on, on what that uh, patient has to say or the employee um, is trying to convey. So uh, I think uh, a lot of CEOs are just not good listeners. Uh, you know, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We should use them proportionally. And I, I find that uh, too many executives are, are acting like professors who they're, they're doing more talking than they are listening. So um, that, that's another... Uh, bad habit I think uh, that executives have that should be um, uh, dealt with is is just uh, not being a good listener and of course profanity we've been hearing a lot about that recently in the presidential debates uh, people just you know our profanity our language needs to be uh, needs to be improved and uh, and I think uh, that's another bad habit that executives have as you talk about listening and being a good listener, it reminds me of your second chapter in the book where you talk about how entrepreneurs have a laser focus. And are those two things mutually exclusive? Can you have a laser focus so that you exclude everything, save your goal, and at the same time be a good listener? Well, having a laser focus is being a good listener. I mean, if if when you're sitting there with that employer or that board directors or whatever that that um, interface is, uh, and you have a laser focus on that, you are a good listener. Uh, when you're thinking about something else, when you're not concentrating on uh, on what is at hand, whether it be a project or a, or a particular problem. Um, then of course you're, you don't ha- you don't have laser f- focus. So what I mean by laser focus is is by if you're talking or if you're listening, 
of whatever project or, or responsibility you're dealing with at the time, focus on that. Don't try to focus on two or three things at the same time. That, that's what that means. So you believe with the experts who say that there is no such thing as effective multitasking, that you really need to do one thing at a time? Well, okay, let's, let's not confuse the two issues. Um, a multitasking means that, um, that you are able to do um, uh, multiple things. In other words, uh, you know, for example, if you, if you have a computer and you have two or three screens up, you're still only focusing one of or two of those screens. You're not focusing on all of them at the same time. Uh, and so when you say multitasking, you know, you can't be a, a threading a needle and playing basketball. And, and so that's not multitasking. Uh, uh, multitasking is the ability to switch from one thing to another readily, seamlessly. Uh, and, and, and that's multitasking. Multitasking is not trying to do, you know, rub your stomach, pat your head, and jump rope. That's not multitasking. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's silly. Uh, so, you know, uh, multitasking is really to be able to transition from one thing to another seamlessly. So that's, that's really what, uh, what, what true multitasking is. Does this laser focus that we're talking about, does this lead to a conflict between your personal and your business life? In other words, the stereotype of the genius or the obsessed entrepreneur, does that mean that you are an absentee husband or an absentee father and so forth? Well, I would certainly hope not, Elena. I have been married uh, almost 55 years, um, 22 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren, uh, four children, too, four children and 22 grandchildren. Um, and uh, I have never worked Saturdays and Sundays. Uh, and I, tr- I attributed that to having a good home and a good wife. Uh, my wife is, is very helpful to me, recognizing uh, my need when I'm at work to stay at work, uh, and so she doesn't bug me during the day, unless it's, it's an emergency or, or extremely important. Uh, and, and so I'm able to concentrate while I'm at work, but once I leave the office, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm home, and, and, I'm not, uh, uh, and I'm not focusing so much on work. I might get an occasional call or a, a meeting that I, that I have to take, uh, during what I would normally call my home hours, but um, uh, uh, I, I lived a very balanced life. Um, I slept eight hours a day. Um, I exercised every day, and um, I spent time with my wife and my children. Um, got involved in the community and my church work, and and um, um, I, I did not devote 100% of my time uh, to to the company. Uh, so, granted, uh, I might be like a fireman. I might be on duty and 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 I have to go put out a fire, but I'm not putting out fires 24/7. And and so the same as a, running the company, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm there 24/7 for them. Uh, I can't just say, well, I'm only the president during eight to five. Uh, I, I have to be willing to take issues uh, at, at all times, no matter when the problem comes up but that I don't just spend 24-7 thinking about the company. Um, I did raise my children successfully, and my two boys were Eagle Scouts, um, and um, um, went on to college, and, and, uh, and I've got a great, uh, great family, great wife, uh, and, and I lived a very, I am living still a very fulfilling life, uh, but I don't devote 24-7 to just doing my uh, business or company things. So hopefully that kind of explains. You have to have a balanced life. You got to have you have, to have personal needs. You got to have family needs, and you have your company. And, uh, and so you want to balance those. Uh, hopefully, maybe a third, a third, and a third, so to speak. So perhaps there is a link between doing these tough things first, so that you're not managing by crisis, but rather managing effectively, so then you can have some of that quality personal life. Perfect, Elena. You, that, I'm going to give you a gold star on that one. That's exactly what happens. So, for example, if, if, if there's a problem 
um, in, in your home and, and like let's say a piece of equipment, a faucet or whatever needs to be repaired and, and you don't do it because it's only dripping right now, then, then you wait until it becomes a, cr- a crisis or a catastrophe. That's going to take more time to fix it. It's best to fix it when it's a small thing, not when it's a big thing. So, you know, it, because small things will become big things. And, and so if you, if you tackle them at the time when, when, it, when it, the problem is observed, get it done, then you don't have, then it doesn't become a catastrophe. Same thing in your business. If you take care of the little things, the big things take care of themselves. And so, you know, don't let them become big things because big things become much more time-consuming than if you just keep them as small things, as they say. What do you think about the new digital invasion into many people's lives? Certainly there's a lot of talk about how millennials are losing social skills because they connect with their peers and with the world in general electronically instead of in person, and they're tethered to their electronic devices all the time. What um, what thoughts do you have on that? Well, it's like anything else. You know, uh, if we become too habitual on anything, uh, it it becomes a a degrading and, and distracting thing in our lives. Um, you know, you, an aspirin um, is good uh, to help uh, the body at certain points, but too much aspirin is damaging. Um, same with vitamin C or any other good thing that, if uh, if if used to excess, it becomes harmful. And and so, um, if we become so tethered uh, electronically that we then lose sight of the personal aspects of it of our lives, then that's damaging. Uh, and, and so um, we don't want things to make it so we're, we're becoming impersonal. One of the things that we have different than, than an animal is the fact that we can rationalize. We, can, we, we have that ability to, to decide right and wrong. Uh, and, and if we lose that ability to, to, to differentiate right and wrong, uh, think what this world would be, would be like. And, and so the only way you can stay on top of right and wrong is if you have that open personal relationship with with the world, as opposed to just hiding in a closet with your digital uh, devices. So, yes, I, I, I believe that that it's going to be harmful if it's not properly managed, like any other good thing that um, uh, becomes all-consuming and then becomes a bad thing. What can modern-day workers and entrepreneurs do to control that in an environment where it's almost expected that when people leave the office, they're still connected, they're still responsive to emails and communications, even though they're officially not at work, and that when they go on vacation, I forget what the statistic was, but I was shocked the other day by how many people feel that they have to respond to queries, to emails, to calls while they're on vacation because they fear for their jobs. Well, it might be uh, self-imposed. It might not be what their company is imposing on them. Um, I have heard, and I'm not going to deny this, that some managers and, and uh, leaders uh, have gotten angry at their employees for not being uh, more accessible um, for you know whatever mechanism they call them not accessible. Um, but um, you know right now, and as I'm speaking to you, I do not have my cell phone. My cell phone is not even near me, uh, and uh, uh, I would say that uh, uh, I probably check my. Uh, my cell phone uh, maybe three or four times a day, uh, and and that's it. Uh, now, you know, I, I look at those digital devices as being very, very beneficial. Uh, we've certainly been able to communicate better uh, and and more readily than we used to in the past. Uh, but uh, but like anything else, it can we can overdo it, and and it becomes a distraction. Uh, when I'm at church, uh, I don't have my cell phone when I'm at church. Uh, I, I leave it off, and or leave it at home, and um, and and same thing when on on an airplane. You know, technically, on an airplane, and they tell you, you know, you have to have your cell phone off, 
Uh, and the reason is because they don't want you to be disturbing and distracting to other people. Not that there's any problem with flying the airplane. It's just that it's disturbing or distracting if everybody is, is on their on their cell phone uh, or, you know, having some noisy communication with someone else, uh, that's, that's distracting. And, um, and so um, wh- whenever we're distracting or distracted, that, that's not a good thing. And, uh, and so um, I, don't, I don't believe we should have an adult record attached to our, our electronic devices. You talk about business as a body in the book, and you outline the brain, the eyes, the heart, and the body. Would you tell us how that works? Okay, so if we look at the business as the body, uh, and I'm using that in the, in, in the sense of, uh, of being able to understand the various parts of the body, you know, we have hands that have a certain function, we have the heart, which has a, it's, it's, it's the lifeblood of the, of the company and, and the, uh, and the leader or the entrepreneur is the, is the, is the heart of the company. But he's also the eyes, um, and, and he's also the brain. He's, he's the vision, uh, he sees things that others don't see, uh, he guides and directs the uh, organization, uh, and and you can't say you know to the lungs I have no need of of the heart or the heart has no need of the of the hands, uh, because what good is the heart going to be if the body can't uh, you know walk or talk or perform its normal functions? So all the the various parts of the body are important, and and you know so every body using B O D Y the, the the physical body. Uh, has parts to it that are important. Um, the ears, the, the nose, the, the mouth, the head, the heart, the hand, the foot, the, they all have a function and they're important. And so we need to look at our company the same way that we can't say to the hands, I have no need of the feet and so forth. Um, so we, 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 we do have to think of ourselves holistically as like a body and, 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 and take care of it like we would our own bodies. And what do these parts correspond to in the company? Okay, so um, the, the, the heart would be the, you know, the, the lifeblood, as you would. That's the, the CEO is like the heart. Uh, whenever we change leaders, as you would, it's like getting a heart transplant, and that's not a good thing because it goes through a recovery period that's pretty severe. Uh, and and the eyes are is, is the is again the, the the company itself has eyes. Everybody's looking out and and seeing what's going on and watching, helping each other. Um, the the brain, of course, uh, is is the intellectual property of the company. It's it's the what what its marketing, what its capability is to 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 um, uh, compete in the, in the markets in which they serve. Um, the feet, of course, is the mobility. How fast can a company move? How quickly can they turn on a dime? And, and the hands are the ones that manufacture and create the product. Uh, and, and so that's kind of how we, uh, we, we develop um, this holistic view of the company as a body. Many companies have a divide between the stated corporate policy and the actual corporate policy. In other words, there's a little bit of double talk. If you ask officially, there's one answer, but if you go to see what the practices of the company are, you find a very different situation. How do you manage the company as the leader to ensure that the message is the same? Okay, well, we've got a couple of subjects going there at the same time. So um, when we talk about, you know, the policies and the procedures, uh, they're the guidelines. that They set forth the, the operation and the functions that, that, that the company should follow. Uh, that gives a structure and organization. Um, and so they're necessary. But that doesn't mean that they're perfect for all conditions and all situations. Uh, just like our own Constitution, look at all the... The, the amendments that we've had to, to, to the Constitution uh, over time, because as time changes, things change, and and we have to be we have to mold these procedures, these policies to fit the times that we operate in. Um, so again, not that we want to make them so structured and so rigid 
that they have no flexibility to them because then they they won't be followed. They won't be uh, 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 viewed as, as 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 viable. And so you know, whatever policies procedures you put in place, they have to be malleable, flexible, so that they fit the circumstance and and the, and the times that you that you're in. Uh, and and if you do, if you have got if you got good policies and procedures that have the structure that allows them some flexibility, people will follow them. They won't deviate from them. So that's that's part number one. Part number two is how do you communicate this? Number one, as a leader, you set the example. You have to be willing to follow the procedures that everybody else does. You know, you can't say, well, be you know, do as I say, but not as I do. You can't do that. You know, you have to be willing to live within the same guidelines and and, and structure that the rest of the company is, uh, and and uh, and and you communicate that by your leadership, by your example, um, by your willing to enforce the procedures. You can't say, oh well, I'll let this and go. You know, you have to be uniform. You have to be fair about how you enforce the procedures and policies of the company, and that's very important uh, for especially a new organization, a young one. Because you get off on the wrong foot, you're going to be stuck with that during the whole tenure of the company. So um, again, you got you got to set the example. You got to be willing to live by it. You got to be fair in the way you 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 enforce the the policies, and you have to communicate them. And you have to stress on a regular basis how important it is for the the the, the constituent parts of the company to follow those procedures and policies. If once you start deviating from them, once you start letting the cat out of the bag. You know, you're going to find that you're, 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 you have chaos, you have anarchy. You know, you don't have that, that good flow that, 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 that a company should have. And don't think just because you're a small company that you don't need this structure. That's crazy. Uh, because, you know, at some point, you know, as your company grows and you, if you don't have those procedures and policies in a place, people have developed their own policies and procedures. And what you're going to have is you're going to have a company that's got all these different Procedures and policies, because these, as these employees go from one company to another, they drag in those policies and procedures that they had at their old company. As a consequence, you, you'll end up with a company with multifaceted procedures and policies that don't fit together. So start out with your own. Uh, even when people come from a new company or a different company, they, they should follow the procedures you have in your company. They, they can't say, and they and hopefully wouldn't say, well, that's not the way we used to do it when I worked at Company XYZ. That makes me think of something that has changed a lot in, I don't know if it's generations or maybe even more so than a single generation, but it used to be that when you went to work, certainly for a large company, it was a bit of a... A marriage of sorts where you looked after the company and the company looked after you and for many people there was an expectation that they would be there for the long term. In recent years the expectation for many people starting with a new company is that they're going to work there for a brief time and that there's no expectation that the company is going to have any sort of loyalty toward the employees and therefore they don't have any loyalty toward the company. They will leave as quickly as they can or as soon as I heard someone say, learn what you can and move on. How do you deal with in this environment, how do you deal with this issue in this environment today when the attitudes toward employees have shifted and and should they, for you as a leader, should you look at employees as disposable and fungible? What do you think? Well, Elena, this is a chicken the egg thing. Um, I, I'm not sure you can put your finger on it. I've been, I've been working now for uh, 50, 55, 56 years um, and since I graduated in college. Uh, and uh, I can't put my finger on it and say, well, well this is when it shifted. Uh I was talking to my son-in-law um, uh, a couple of months ago, and uh, I asked him, you know, uh, you know, his view on on loyalty. In other words, I said, "Well, do you plan on working for the for the company you're currently with forever?" 
And he said, well, no. Well, see, there's your, there's the problem. I mean, you know, so that's a chicken and egg thing. I mean, how can a company feel loyalty to its people if the people don't feel that loyalty to the company? Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, you know, are you planning on staying with your company for the rest of your life? If you say no, then where's that loyalty? And vice versa, the company's not, they're not going to have that loyalty either because you've already said that you're not going to stay there forever. And, and so I think if you go back in time, people, people did stay forever. They didn't move around mainly because they didn't have that ability to move around. We didn't, you know, they didn't have the trains and the airplanes and they couldn't move around like they can today. Uh, you know, t- today in, uh, in, in, Today's world, as you would, uh, the, the the employee doesn't look at the current company he's with as a, a long time um, employment, and and so it's a chicken and egg thing. I don't think you can blame the companies for for this. Um, it's it's also the, once the the employee says, "I'm I'm here, you've got me for the rest of my life," and, and if that were to now become the trend, you'll see the companies change also. Is this something that you, as the entrepreneur, as the leader, as the CEO of your company, should be driving? Shouldn't you be deciding how you value your employees? Isn't looking at the employees for that sort of the tail wagging the dog? Sure, absolutely. There's no question in my mind. You're spot on, sir. You can do that. Uh, if you if you set that that environment, that stage saying, okay, you may not want to stay in my company forever, but I'm going to pretend like you are. In other words, I'm going to treat you as though you're going to be here forever. If they were to do that, that sure, that would change things. And that will get a lot of the employees to want to stay. There's no question about it. And you should have the, the, the view, just like in your marriage, when you, when you were at the altar and, and you know, the, the, the minister said, do you take this man or woman to be your lawful-led husband or wife? for as long as you shall live, and if you don't have your fingers crossed, if you're really meaning that, then you'll work at trying to be that kind of husband or wife that will that will have a, a forever marriage. Uh, and, and so, you know, if, if both the company and the employee, talking like their husband and wife, uh, treat each other that way, then they will, you will have that stable um, uh, uh, relationship with the, with the employer and employee. Does that relate to what you talk about in the book? In the second part of your book, you talk about the importance of making people feel important. Would you tell us about that? Yes, I mean, that's the exact same thing. Um, uh, another, a quick story on that one, Elena. Uh, I had one of my employees was talking about this girl he was uh, dating, and he um, and I said, well, why don't you marry her? And, and he said, well, I'm not sure what kind of wife she's going to make. And I said, you got it wrong. You shouldn't be worrying what kind of wife she's going to make. You should be worried about what kind of husband you're going to make. And and that's the key here is is an employee employer. You know the employee should worry about what kind of an uh, of an employee he's going to be for the company, and not worrying what kind of an employer the company's going to be, and vice versa. The company should not be worrying about you know what kind of uh, employee that. Uh, that they're going to hire, but more about what can the company do to, to help motivate and stimulate and retain that employee. You see what I'm saying? So it's a, it's, it's, when you point your finger, you've got three pointing back at you, you, you know, it, and that means that you should do what you can do and don't worry about the other person. And, uh, and, and that's the key. The key is, is that just like in a marriage, the husband should worry about what kind of husband he's going to be, and the wife should be worrying what kind of wife she's going to be, and not worrying about what kind of husband the husband's going to be, or the wife is, you know, to, to what kind of husband the wife expects, and vice versa. What kind of steps can you take in that direction so that your employees feel that they're a valued part of the company and not just disposable? By listening, as a, being a willing listener, um, uh, by being fair, and if there, when a situation comes up, uh, maybe the family's got some kind of a med- medical problem or some kind of a other family issue that you're that you're 
concerned about them. You 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 know the names of their spouses. You you know their children. You 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 you, you act like you care about them as people, and not just as a number or a or a, a function. Uh, and and so the the key is is treat the employees like a family, like you would your own family. Hopefully you treat your family better. Uh, some don't, but uh, uh, you know I'm, I'm thinking about a good family where. You know, there's there's love and compassion uh, for for one another, and uh, of course we're seeing that deteriorate too. But if if we're talking about companies and what they can do, they should be treating it like like a family. In other words, just like an, uh, the extension of of that employee's home, uh, making him him or her feel safe, uh, uh, not using condescending language, uh, by being. Um, uh, Concerned about them as, as individuals, uh, not always worrying about oh, are you getting this project out on time and beating them up for this or that, but being concerned and, and show that love and respect that they deserve. How do you, within that context, deal with issues of diversity? Because when you have a company increasingly in today's work environment, you are bound to have some degree of diversity, whether it's religious or by gender or ethnicity or so many other forms of diversity that we're seeing today. What is the best way that you can find harmony in the work environment when it comes to issues of diversity? Well, you have it when you got married, right? I mean, you're you're a female and your husband's a male. I mean, there's right there is diversity. So if you learn how to be a good husband or wife, um, and 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 you respect your role um, and, and that responsibility, uh, then diversity doesn't matter. Um, I don't care what what color you are or what religion you are, uh, as long as you respect who I am. Um, and and so uh, it's that respect for one another that that's key. Um, and you know, it, it's just like me having been married now for you know for almost 55 years. Uh, you know, I've had I've had to build on that relationship. It didn't happen by accident, and I had to respect the diversity of of, of, of roles. Um, me being the the husband, the breadwinner, and, and my wife in this case uh, uh, being the homemaker and, and being the one that raises and trains the children. Uh, and and so there is that diversity in, in the company, and as long as there is that mutual respect for one another's roles, it doesn't matter what what color or what religion or background you are, as long as you respect each other. What suggestions, what tips would you share with our listeners, Ray, that they can take back and apply to their entrepreneurial life? toward making their companies, their career paths, their personal lives better by doing tough things first? What would you share with them? Well, the first thing is I'd like them to think about this, that they are to be loved and not feared. Loved and not feared. If they will take that back as, as one of the, the, the tips or hints, uh, that's extremely important. And that for them, this is if they want to have a quality organization. The second thing is, is that they are to be good listeners, willing listeners, that they show interest and concern for their people. The next thing is to not use vulgar language. Don't be condescending to your people. To to be uh, truly respect them, irrespective of where they are in the organization, whether they're a janitor or whether they're an executive, you know, treat them fairly, be fair with them and, 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 know, and let them know that you are a kind and humble person, that you don't, you're not egocentric and that you're not nefarious, that you, that you have, you know, their best interest at heart. Uh, so to, to, to be a good leader means that you have to set the proper example in everything. And that's a challenge because that means you have to be good, a very good person. And that's the key. The key is to be respected and not feared and and to be um, humble and gentle 
uh, and, and meek. And, and I, I'm interested in this word meek because meek doesn't mean that you're weak. Meek means that you are not putting yourself out there as being, you know, the, the big uh, uh, potentate. That that uh, that you're one of the guys, you're one of the gals, you know, you're 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 in there with them, and and so if you can keep that 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 meekness, uh, and not again, meekness is not weakness, and that's another thing that I talk about in the book, is not to not you know I don't want to want to appear weak, but I want to appear humble. I want to appear like I'm 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 in it with them, um, you know, even though I was the CEO of the company. Um, I'd often have the, the janitor would just come in and talk to me. He spoke Spanish and I speak Spanish. And so he was just, we just, he and I would just converse in Spanish with each other. Uh, and, and, and he felt comfortable just coming in, just, just talking with me. And so if you can have that sort of relationship with all levels of the people in your company, so much the better because they will learn to love you as you love them. And, and that's the, the key here. Is, is to have that kind of an organization. And if you do, you will have some of the lowest turnover of, the, uh, of any company uh, in, in your field. And Mike Krell was that way. Mike Krell had the lowest turnover by almost half the turnover of any other company in our field. So those are the tips I have, Elena. Uh, to recap, you said that you should strive to be love and not feared that you should be a willing listener as a leader of your company. You should pay attention to what people are saying and that you should respect and be fair to the people that you work with. Is that Perfect. right? Yeah, uh, and I'm not, I'm not minimizing doing the tough things first. I mean, I just, I just was coming up with some other hints because rather than we talked in the beginning about doing the tough things first, and so we shouldn't um, not mention them to learn to love the things we hate. We should we should do that. I mean, that's certainly you know some of one of the things in the book we talk about. That's the title of the book: "Tough Things First. So I don't want to just gloss over that. I assumed that was underlying the tips that you were sharing. Within that, that you should strive to do the tough things first in terms of being loved and not feared. It's not always easy to love someone. Sometimes you don't like someone and you still have to love them. This is certainly true in families, right? You know, you may not love what they do, but you can love them as a person. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I believe in loving your enemies. Um, and, and uh, you know, you say, well, how can you love your enemy, by the way, has, has your worst interest at heart. So how can you love your enemy? Easy. You know, you can love them even though they don't love you. So that's the key is loving them even though they don't love you. That still makes them an enemy, but they don't have to be an enemy in your heart. They can be an enemy in their heart. And, and so, you know, you can't control their behavior. You might be able to influence their behavior, but you can't control it. And so if you can, uh, you know, show them that you love them, even though they don't love you, you'll, you'll see things turn around. How would you define love in the corporate environment, Ray? Would you help us flesh that out a little bit? Sure. Um, love is, is respect. It's, it's honor. It's um, uh, uh, being virtuous. It's being uh, uh, humble, uh, kind, gentle. Um, uh, charitable, uh, and, and so that's that's what love in, in the context of work is: being fair, uh, being respectful. Uh, those are the the, the uh, terms associated with with love. Um, you know, so you know the opposite of that, of course, is is hatred, and, uh, uh, and or when you despise somebody, then you're not loving, you're not kind, you're not gentle, you're not. Humbly, you're, you're egotistical. You, you know all the things that are opposite of those terms that we just defined as you know what is love. So that's what I mean by uh, you know loving each other. What do you do when you have individuals in your company, in your organization, in your environment that are not loving, that are disruptive, that are hateful? How do you handle that while still 
doing the tough things first and being respectful and fair because you can't change other people, right? You can only change how you behave. How do you do that? Well, just like they say, Elena, about one rotten apple spoils the barrel. And if you want that one rotten apple to stay around, he's going to spoil your barrel. So what maybe one of the tough things first that you have to do is invite them to go find another company. Uh, and, and that may be tough. Maybe they're very important and, and, and uh, have a major role in the company, but if they're disruptive, if they're not able to keep the fabric together, um, to help you keep your fabric of your company together, they should be invited to leave. And that may be one of the tough things you have to do. So, you know, again, you can't control their behavior. You can only influence it. And if you're, if you're to the point where you've done everything you can uh, and they're being so disruptive and so disharmonious uh, that the organization is going to suffer, irrespective of how good a person they are from a technical or from a, some other um, marketing advantage, uh, then you should be invited to, to find another place to work. So being loving and not being feared, being respectful and being fair doesn't necessarily mean letting other folks walk all over you. Sometimes it means that you have to make tough decisions and fire people and uh, sort of press them to deliver. Is that right? Absolutely. As I said, one rotten apple spoils a barrel. And, um, and so, you know, you have to get rid of that rotten apple sometimes. Uh, I, I, so when I said a person's meek, I didn't say they were weak. So that's the, that's what people think when you're meek that you're weak and you're not. So a, a meek person is a humble person, but they're not weak. Um, and and um, um, I think I heard uh, someone say uh, uh, just last night uh, that uh, um, uh, you know some of the, the strongest people speak the softest, and uh, so. Um, um, you know, some of the, the biggest and strongest people I know are the, probably the most gentle people. And, and um, I think some of the, your strongest leaders, by the way, are, are some of the, the, the nicest and the humblest leaders. You know, lead through, lead through what? Not through, not, not through just um, um, fear and, and uh, intimidation. How do you leverage that into helping your staff, your leaders to grow to their next level, sort of to avoid that point at which they go beyond their comfort level, beyond their competence. How do you manage that so that they grow, but so that they're not promoted beyond their capabilities? Well, they have to want to, to, to change if and, and so if they want to change, uh, then, of course, um, you, you know, you leading by example will, will help. I had this one executive that worked for me for years that had this language problem. He just, his, his vulgarity was, was, was just terrible. And, and so um, I, I said, okay, Bob, every time that you swear, I mean, there's a jar in my office. You've got to go put a dollar in it. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and anybody, I don't have to be around if somebody else hears you. You know, they're going to report it to me, and you're going to have to come put a dollar in here. So it was really interesting. It didn't take but about three years, and uh, uh, he, had, he had totally com- uh, completely uh, quit uh, using vulgar language. And I talked to him just not too long ago, and he's retired now, and he doesn't use foul language anymore. In other words, he's gotten over it. So, you know, you just, you just work with them, set the example. Um, and, you know, you can't ask somebody to stop swearing if you swear. So you have to be willing to walk the talk. So you set the example. That's the key. The key is the tone of the company is going to be set by the example of the leader. Excellent. Well, thank you, Ray, for joining us from Atherton, California. Well, thank you for inviting me, Elena. This has been a wonderful experience for me. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Ray Zinn, who is author of Tough Things First, who discussed how doing tough things first may be essential to getting ahead. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor 
at hispanicmpr.com.